Hi, and welcome to DWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Chris Fault, editor of the Toolkit. And my guest today is the creator of the Netflix series, Dear White People, Justin Simeon. And this episode of the podcast is sponsored by ABC's Emmy-nominated comedy, Blackish, starring Emmy nominees Anthony Anderson and Tracy Ellis Ross, four-year Emmy consideration in outstanding comedy series and all other comedy categories. Don't forget to vote-ish. And now, my conversation with Justin Simeon. In, in season one, you set up this wonderful structure, one character, one episode, yeah. and uh, really entering that point of view. I mean, obviously, the whole story is there. And the thing that was like really remarkable about um, the storytelling there was the larger narrative flowed. You know, mm-hmm. in that backdrop, Sam's mm-hmm. story kept going, and it felt very natural. Yeah, I'm wondering. Um, I want to move towards season two, but just kind of at that aspect, was that something that was difficult to figure out? Not obviously the point of view works really well, but then also how to kind of make mm-hmm. sure that the larger story is moving forward in the backdrop when you are staying. I mean, I get difficult, sure, but difficult in the way that like anything and everything <laughs> in making a TV show is difficult. Um, you know, I've always loved ensemble films and, uh, even when writing the show, or re- writing the movie rather, you know, people would say, hey, I think this might be a show, this could be a show, you know, because it has an ensemble. But I, I, I was in love with the, the film version of that first, and how you can get an audience to care about like a lot of people <laughs> over, you know, what can sometimes be a complicated journey if you're dealing with say like Robert Altman or somebody. Um, and I just was really a student of those kinds of films. Um, and I think that sort of passion, because in TV they usually just do, you know, if it's an ensemble, you have your A storyline, your B storyline, and your C storyline. Mm. You just kind of cut through whenever you're over something, really. You just sort of cut to a different storyline. But I thought it would be more interesting to kind of take some of that, um, the unity that you get in a movie, mm-hmm. where you find reasons and ways to string the different storylines together. Um, I found that really compelling and I thought that that was something that hadn't really been done on TV before and something that uniquely I could do with Netflix because unlike other um, companies, Netflix was, you know, if they say yes to you, you just make the whole thing. You don't make a pilot and then wait. And, you know, this show couldn't work that way because if we did the pilot as the first episode, you know, Netflix would be asking, well, what about Coco? Well, when are the, where are the other characters going to come in? And, it's, you know, that's not quite what, the, that wasn't the game we were playing. So um, the, the biggest difficulty was just convincing everyone that that would be okay. But I think everyone just sort of felt like it would work, you know? Um, and then our jobs is to make sure that the, or at least my job as a storyteller is always to make sure that everything is anchored in the same thematic sort of universe. Like, so we're always asking the same questions on a personal level that we're asking on a macro level. And it, that seems to have worked now a couple of seasons in a row. So I'm going to keep rolling in that <laughs> direction because <laughs> it is a bit of an experiment. And then when you, uh, when you reset to do, and obviously you maintain the, the character episode, uh, was in terms of how it evolved it, it, did it become did you become a little looser about it because it, it, it you no. know I had spent a while since I've seen season one but it did feel to me a little bit like um, maybe loosening a little bit on mm. a particular sometimes it's all you know sometimes Not we're in, really we actually got a, even tighter you did it. okay so, I mean what we did is we made a concerted effort certainly in instances to say you know for instance episode six in this in this season um, season two, it's a Lionel episode, but it's really also a two-hander between Lionel and Brooke. So while we never 
see anything outside of Lionel's point of view, we see a lot of Brooke in that episode. Mm. It might as well be the, you know, the two of them in the beginning. We just happen to be there in Lionel's point of view. And, um, you know, last season, the first season, we gave ourselves permission to kind of cut around different character stories in the finale. And this season, in the finale, you know, I was like, that's not good enough. Like, we can't cut to another character's point of view unless they physically encounter each other or else unless there's a like there's a, a natural transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we kind of tightened, tightened up the screws a little bit on ourselves this this time around because there's something about it I just think is unique and interesting. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of artist who's always sort of believed in giving yourself some kind of rule. Uh, some kind of parameters to stay within. It makes the work stronger, I think. Um, and in this case, because the show is so much about challenging, you know, your point of view, you, the audience's point of view on these characters versus their own on themselves, um, it just it feels so right to do it that way, you know? I'm not saying we're going to do it that way forever, but it certainly has made sense thus far. And that first day that you walk into the writer's room for season two, what what... What did you have? What was the starting point? Like when you when you sat down with your staff? It was really to sort of cull any or kill any sort of celebration. Because uh, season you were one, the party pooper. That's what you yeah. Because <laughs> season one had you know we did really well with critics and um, audience seemed to really respond to it. A lot of the crazy so-called backlash finally had sort of died away. And people were discovering the show and were really loving it. And it was sort of like, well, so what? Like, that's not, who cares? That was last season. It's not good enough. We have to be better in every way. And not because I think, you know, you have to kill yourself or cut your wrist to make good art. But I did feel like I did not want to succumb to a sophomore slump. I felt like the times that we're in require a more urgent show uh, than we originally created. And we needed to stand, we needed to step up uh, to the times that we're in. Um, not only because creatively I'd be bored otherwise, <laughs> but also because, you know, that's the whole reason we're storytellers, because we want to engage people in these issues, and these issues are so of the moment right now that we, we just, every level, the, the character exploration, the, the narrative design, um, the costumes, the makeup, the hair, the performances, the directors, like we just wanted everything better. Than, than season one. And so that was the speech I gave, was like, welcome back, so good to see you, here's the thing. <laughs> Let's pretend like we are starting from scratch. When you say uh, more urgent, I mean, obviously I think everybody that's listening to this could understand you know, what, sure. what, what we're talking about in terms of the context of the world, in this country, and race, but in terms of story, yeah. in terms of the things that you're talking about, I wonder if you can give an example from season two of mm. something of turning up that dial sure. of urgency. Yeah, I mean, take take the argument that Sam and Gabe have at the end of season 10 mm. and compare that to episode eight. You know, we just, we're going further and deeper um, in every respect with these characters. Uh, you know, Sam and Gabe have a fight. In episode 10, they seem to break up. Uh, over Sam having a, a little moment with Reggie. And, uh, and in this season, you know, they're sort of actively avoiding each other. And when they finally come together, you know, narratively, I lock them in a room. And I force the two, these two people who otherwise can hide and shade and avoid each other, they are forced to have the conversation that they've been needing to have. Uh, both about race and politics on campus, but about each other and what you did to me and what I did to you. Um, 
it, it, these are really difficult conversations and I think technology allows us so many ways to avoid difficult conversations. Uh, and I, I wanted to see what would happen if we locked them in a room and we forced them to have it. That's something we probably never would have done in a first season to sort of do a, you know, what they call a bottle episode where you contain the, the script to the cast that you have on hand, no new hires, no new friends, and uh, the sets that you have on hand. And in this instance, we, we kind of went even further and said, well, let's just confine, confine them to the radio station and just these two characters. This is the story we, we, we want to watch. Everyone else is just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a subplot to this. So let's just do this for 30 minutes. And I bet it'll work, and it did. And this is, of course, episode eight that you directed, yeah. um, and it's very unique uh, in that sense of it is that one room. Uh, you recently did a piece, I don't want to go over this, but uh, you did a wonderful breakdown with uh, Matt Zeller Seitz about the yeah. kind of shooting of this, and people should go take a look at that in that sense of, of shooting this almost like a boxing match and, yeah. that, and that way that they're going at it. And, you know, there's something here about that arc of, of Sam and Gabe. Mm -hmm. You know, there is that element we're tracking that relationship. Um, you know, and it, that episode really hit me, really hit me hard. I mean, I've been, I've been on the show, but I, that one just, it, it mm. really hit me. There's this thing where it's like, I don't, maybe I think, you know, in 10 years when someone's a college student, they're gonna be looking back on this time and mm. be like, you know, the cinema of microaggression, you know, <laughs> like this period and, 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 and that sense of Dear White People is gonna be in a very important chapter in that, yeah. you know, and as a, as a white audience member, it's something that, it, it's led to great cinema, but it's also led to an eye-opening. Yeah. And I, please tell me if I'm wrong here, but that the episode really spoke to me. And you know, please tell me, tell my 40-year-old white ass if I'm wrong here. But <laughs> but uh, you know, um, that sense of you know, and I of it just being exhausting, an element of what it is to mean to be exhausted in a, in a world where uh, racism is something that is ever present and is that something you cannot walk away from mm -hmm. but yet that exists in these microaggressions mm -hmm. exists in these ways that are hard to pull apart in black yeah. and white and that and in the fact that the, we, we've been invested in this relationship with Sam mm -hmm. and Gabe mm -hmm. and that they're having it and that that you, you give such equal. You did it like a uh, boxing match. Oh yeah, but, had, but but you also gave them each weight. They each had to. There could be no winner because who's right is not the point of that episode. Who's right is not the point at all. The point is is that we are so busy arguing over who's right that we don't see each other anymore, right. and we don't um, like relationships that ordinarily would just be happening. <laughs> Uh, can't happen because we are necessarily so in some instances um, having these conversations about how society affects me differently than it affects you. And um, so it wasn't important who was right and who was wrong. They both had really good points. There's like a limit of right. There's yeah. a, there's a, there seems to be a limit of right. There's a limit of white allyship. There's a limit. Well, there's it, a limit to how far being right will even take you. You know, you can be right until you're blue in the face, but what are we going to do about man. it? Like, what are we going to do about it? You know, and it's not going to happen in a silo. Black people didn't create race, let alone racism. So we can't do it by ourselves in our own communities. We, it has to engage the greater community. Uh, people of other races, white people especially, to break down the system, you know. Um, but for me, it was, you know, kind of back to what you were saying. 
This thing about microaggressions and stuff, it, it, it is like a, walking around black is, there's a subtext of show me your papers, you know? You don't f literally have to show people your papers anymore if you're black. But it, there's, a, there's a subtext that it, that's in the subtext often, mm. you know, whether, it, whether it's if someone's kind of, I remember, you know, in Italy, and, and some of this is just the way the stores function, but anytime we would go into a nice store, I would kind of be followed, you know, around the store just to make sure. And there is, and, and you know, I would find myself turning to, oh, do you have this in a size that, I, just to let them know I'm here to fucking buy something, like leave me alone. And that sense of having to always respond to the white gaze or to the suspicion of somebody that is white who you don't know, are you friend or foe? I don't know, I don't know how you see me yet, but I do know how you see me affects me in a way that how I see you does not affect you. You know what I'm saying? And having to unearth all of that, all of the fucking time, sometimes by choice, sometimes not by choice, there is something just so exhausting about it. And it's not so much that like little microaggressions by in and of themselves are so terrible, like touching someone's hair, it's like, okay, whatever. But they add up, and I think the point of, you know, talking about microaggressions is really to let people in on the fact that like there's a whole, uh, there's a whole other underlayer happening that you would never be aware of if someone didn't tell you about it. Because, you know, I, I don't think white people will realize that black people walk around feeling like they have to show their papers all the time. Um, and because especially if you're the kind of white person who doesn't think that way about black people, it would never occur to you that that black person has, so, has been so conditioned to expect, you know, retaliation or expect, you know, some kind of awful uh, response to their blackness. Um, that we do carry this with us everywhere we go, and it's it can be a lot. And I think Sam needed Gabe to see that in this scene, and Gabe needed Sam to see that just because he's a white guy and just because everything she said was true doesn't mean that he doesn't hurt also from her actions, her personal actions to him. And these are two people who needed each other to hear one thing about each other, but they have to have this whole conversation before we can even get there. And the thing about it, and in, in, in talking about this, is um, there are these ideas, and, and you just express them far better than I ever could, but then to share them in cinema, to mm -hmm. speak them in the language of a film so that an audience can, you know, there's the idea and those thoughts, but then there's also the way that film can welcome us in and experience it. And, you know, you, you did that episode eight, and you directed it in a very distinct way mm -hmm. that... Um, brought something so intense to me to life. But one thing that is so wonderful about this show is that you don't direct every episode, although that, that would be good, but you obviously can't, or maybe you, you I know. Can't. It, you, you, <laughs> I cannot. That, um, but because of the structure that you have, yeah, um, where you do have, each one has a point of view, and mm. in that point of view, uh, the writing has a point of view, and the cinema has. You, you're able to bring in like what you did with episode eight. It senses you're bring, you're bringing in filmmakers um, who is, that can work within this dear white people structure Absolutely. and give this point of view, which I don't. Because they're all cinema makers, you know. I, I distinguish a difference between visual storytellers and cinema makers. Uh, they may be arbitrary distinctions, but to me, cinema is more than just gather the coverage that you need to tell the story. Cinema is about, well, how do I use the visual image to express something about this, whether it's emotional or intellectual, but 
something, I'm, I'm using the visual image to express something about this moment that seeing it as a play or seeing it in any other s a series of shots would not tell you. That to me is what is special about every director I've worked with on the show. Um, I mean, things that Kimberly Pierce do, does in episode four with Coco, mm. uh, when she's having to choose between a potential pregnancy and the rest of her career at Winchester, things I never would have thought of because she's coming at it from many different perspectives, but one of them is, is the perspective of a woman who has spent her life actively thinking about women and, and women's issues. And so, you know, there's a moment when Coco is rubbing her belly and we sort of crest over yeah. it like the moon. Yeah. That's all Kim. That wasn't even in the script. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and to me, it would just feel so irresponsible to tell a story like this that is purporting to be about different perspectives and especially purporting to be about the female perspective, um, you know, just being one dude, <laughs> making the whole thing, as if I know, because I can't possibly know. Um, I think that's what makes the show fun and rich, is that the episodes feel different from each other, and they feel singular. And I think the fact that everything that we do, we try to make it feel singular, that's what actually unites all of the episodes together. But, you know, when we're like, you know, I shot episode six like a film noir piece. And, you know, Steve Sashuda shot episode seven, which is the, the, the episode where Troy trips on mushrooms. Um, I mean, he shot lots of, like hair or something. It, it's just, it's a delight. It's a delight. And it's also because I really just love what I do. It's fun to get to learn from these people, you know, and, and get to learn how they work on set and get to see them on a TV show finally take the sort of TV shackles off. And, and then say, you know, you get to make a little movie this week and, and, and it's yours. And I'll let you know if you sort of hit a parameter that I don't like or doesn't mm -hmm. feel like it's part of this world, but by and large, do what I wouldn't do, please. Is there also an element of casting the director to yeah. a story? Absolutely. In my mind, I, I love Janzica Bravo. It, it, and it's like, it, but there's something about there's something so singular about her voice. I don't even know how, I mean, you have to see Lemon to kind of, you know. Yeah. Well, Janixa, you know. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't say her name right. Oh, yeah, Janixa, yeah. I've never said it aloud, I've just read it all the time. No, I know, I know. We all, when we were working, when we <laughs> went to hire her, we everybody said it all kind of ways. Um, no, but Janixa, the thing that was so interesting about Lemon, Lemon, I almost said Lemonade, Lemon, is that uh, it makes the surreal out of the mundane, and it she she's got an absurdist, quality to her work that I just thought was so f refreshing and interesting and you know I knew that I wanted somebody because the episode that she directs Sam goes home she leave she leaves we, Winchester for the first time the move we leave for, I know she leaves but we leave for Every, the first yeah, time yeah it's the first time you feel a sense of what the world around, outside of Winchester might look like it might feel like and I just felt um, that she would have a really interesting hand on an interracial family dynamic um, you know, she spoke, she speaks about it as a filmmaker in a really interesting way in Lemon. And I just, I, I, you know, she's done so much TV too. I just wanted to see how all of that would come to bear in a show where there, she wasn't just sort of directing to the style guide. You know, we have a, a pretty extensive style guide and color story and all that stuff, but it's really designed to be a starting point for the directors. Mm. It's not meant to be a prison. And I knew that she could take that and, and run somewhere else with it, and that's exactly what she did. <laughs> well, I want to talk about the style of the show because there's something very, I mean, there's a sophistication to it, kind of a high comedy element mm -hmm. to it, which is very specific from 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 the look, but um, and in the voiceover. Uh, and there, I, I want to talk about kind of 
I want to talk about the specifics of you know the music, the look, the voiceover, and the and and the camera. But kind of big picture, yeah. that sophistication, that breeze of this, because this is not you know Giancarlo's voiceover. You know, there's something. Yeah. There seems to be. Um, it's working in an interesting layer also with what the story is. So I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk about um, that sense of what that layer, which is so delightful, yeah. it means also in telling this story of means, Dear White Paul. You know, it means so many things to me. I think that I'll start with why I think it works is because you really, no matter what choices you make, no matter how fun they are, they have to be telling the story. And we're telling a story about a group of people who... Um, the world has decided a lot of things about them. And so in order to defend against that or to navigate that, they have to project a lot about who they are before you even really hear from them. You have to lay eyes on them and get a sense of them. That's sort of their shield. And so, you know, these, they, they form these tribes and they almost put these crests on. Uh, not a metaphor, metaphorical crest, so that the minute they walk into the room, you know who they are. And that's why the show presents so visually, it's so presentational. Especially when you first meet a character, they're almost presented to you as if like- in I love those little, you get the, back, the color yeah, backdrop and the little like yeah. silhouette, they <laughs> turn around. That's yeah. exactly right, you know? And you immediately, the, the show is sort of tempting you to form judgments about people and everything that you see because it's presenting it to you in this very like, almost like you're watching them in a display box or something. Mm -hmm. And then as the episodes go on, you realize, oh, this person is nothing like I thought they were. Mm -hmm. And even the thing that they want me to think they are, that's not who they are. And the thing that like, I'm judging them about, that's not who they are. And it's, it's just constantly sort of pointing at and, and picking at your expectations of them. And I think, you know, we're doing that because I, what we're trying to get people to see, among many other things, is that you know we, as an audience, you know, watching this story, we have so much power in the society that we create just the, just by the way we respond to it outside of the show. You know, I've said this line before; it's becoming a line, but I mean it. You know, if you fall in love with Coco and you fall in love with Rashid and you fall in love with Al and Troy and Reggie and Sam and Lionel, when you see them in your Starbucks having a meeting and they haven't ordered a coffee yet, your, your first instinct may not be to call the cops because you've seen them now. You haven't just seen how they present. You've seen them, you know, that's the idea. Um, and the other part of it is that, you know, I love, I just love cinema. And I, the cinema that I grew up with didn't have black people in it. And so, you know, with very few exceptions, I mean, Spike and Ernest Dickerson in particular would do the right thing, brought a lot of the French New Wave um, brought, you know, stuff from silent movies, just brought to bear a lot of cinematic techniques that before them, no person of color would ever find themselves in. You know, you got to go to Oscar Michaud before you can really see anything that looks like cinema with black people in it. Um, or, or that's about, you know, central black characters. Um, and so just wanting to see black faces and faces of color in these kinds of frames is part of it for me. Um, but you know everything in it is a, you know is a pastiche, and there's a group within the show called Pastiche, uh, not incidentally so, uh, and, and you know it's a pastiche of all kinds of cultural influences, whether it's classical music, jazz music, hip hop music. You know we we sometimes will be quoting movies. You know we we quote a lot of Persona. We've quoted Barry Lyndon. I quoted some De Palma in the first season. Um, all of it is is meant to sort of say. All of these cultural cues that you kind of, that we have, as a as society have sort of collectively decided is for white people, 
you know, it's actually for everybody. And everybody should get to, you know, be a part of this postmodern artistic moment. Just because it's a black character doesn't mean it has to be gritty or, you know, shaky or, I don't know, darkly lit or something, you know. Um, so it's, it's doing all of that. Um, and so we both like have this sort of candy-coated persona for every show, for every episode, the way we start. But then the, 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 the magic of the show is, well, what happens when we drill down past it? And that's when those individual directors' voices come in. Because you get to see a version of these lives that doesn't feel like me, you know? And at a certain point, you just start to identify it with the character. Um, like Lionel's episodes have a relationship with each other. And Charlie McDowell has directed a, few, a lot of them. I've, basically, Charlie and I have kind of directed the bulk of the Lionel episodes. And they all have a, a very specific kind of surreal quality that say Sam's episodes do not have, or that Coco's episodes do not have. Um, and that's very intentional. The music, you, you reference the fact that there's different types of music, but in general, even, even when, you know, if you need the thump, if you need, if you mm -hmm. need, if you need some hip hop, you get it. But in general, everything feels, even though it's not, you do have some score, Everything feels scored. Everything mm -hmm. feels once again. You're, you're, yeah. uh, you referenced uh, Spike in those '80s, '90s films, and there, there is this movement. There's this feeling of a musical. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Absolutely. It, and you know, so often with TV, it's done so quick. And this isn't a knock, but it's like yeah, it's it toss um, a song, toss this thing in they're here. They're transition cues. Yeah, yeah, TV. yeah. I'm wondering. Um, in terms of your collaborators on that side, but also kind of setting out the rules. What what is what is the approach there? Because you're also you're mixing between a jazz track score and, 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 and so like that kind of like how we're gonna blend that yeah. and move that. Because sometimes you don't even notice and it's like and it goes with the dialogue and it's Absolutely. Just, it's a, and there's you know, there's refrains and there's uh, choruses and themes that come and go. Um, I mean this is something that uh, Kubrick is sort of my to use gay parlance here, black gay parlance, he's my house mother. He's the filmmaker that I watched the most growing up. And one of the things that he, for me, and I think for the film industry, the, the trajectory of film in general did, was sort of introduce a new way to think about music. It's not just sort of to accentuate emotions in a Kubrick film. Music operates almost like a counter to what's happening in the scene. Like, I mean, he literally would just take masterpieces and stick them under scenes. And, to, and you know, before Kubrick, sure, there were a lot of amazing composers, but that desire to make a masterpiece, to make something that symphonically can stand on its own, to just be under a scene, is not, that was not the focus of music and cinema before Kubrick. And what it does is it, it, it just adds an artistic richness to it. It's not just there to tell you what you already know or to make you feel what you already feel. It's there to counter and to add to the scenes. And so, you know, Chris Bowers, who does the music for the show, and Catherine Bostick, who did the, movie for the, or did the music for the movie, what I would tell them is I want you to create pieces that um, can exist without the scene. That sort of, of course, work with the scene and work with the emotions of the scene and the tone of the scene, but there's something going on in the music that's in addition to what's happening in the scene. Um, it's it's not just sort of like when someone says something funny, doo -doo, it's not, it's not, don't accentuate what's already there. Add to it. It should be additive or it should be counter. It should be doing something that we don't think is right in the scene that makes us think about the scene in a new way. Um, and uh, particularly working with somebody like Chris, who is just such a consummate artist um, who, who knows how to do jazz and knows how to do uh, classical music and knows how to do pop music. 
very well all three of those things. Um, yeah, we wanted to create something that did kind of work like a symphony. You know, each of these characters have little music cues and um, each of the themes that we're exploring too have little music cues because the show says a lot but the meaning of it is, is, is below the dialogue. It's a lot of it is subtextual. And the music kind of just helps you go like, oh, remember, doesn't this feel like a moment you felt before? Remember this moment in a couple episodes ago? You know, the music is just sort of to help us along, sort of know when something is happening in the scene that isn't being talked about. Um, and that's, that's, my, that's usually my approach. It's like, give me, something, give me something that has something to it. And part of this also is, is you know, you, you would obviously meet Dear White People as an independent film. Mm -hmm. um, and in general, movies of, as long as we're not in the huge realm, are made so cheaply now yeah. and so quickly. And, and, and the type of cinema that you're talking about, I mean, this is, to a certain degree, only possible with the resources of, of Netflix. Mm -hmm. And so some of those things that um, you kind of almost have to, on this level of this type of story, because it's not the yeah. temple, you almost have to do it with the resources of a, of a TV program yeah. to do something like But to be clear, this is not an expensive show by any stretch of the imagination, okay? You couldn't do this, right? You couldn't have done this uh, to some of this degree of some of the look and things like that, right? I don't know. I it? mean, I think there's a lot. Honestly, I think intention and point of view goes a long, long way. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, um, Tangerine is a great, it's, it's an easy example, but it's a great example of mm -hmm. With the right intention and with the right tone, all you need is an iPhone. And I, I kind of hate that. It's not that simple. Um, but you know, it's like, what are we spending the money on? It's not really the cameras. It's that's the look. You know, the look is coming from me and the DP. Um, the music is a one-man band. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the costumes are this woman named Ceci, who's fantastic. Um, so you're paying money for the actors, but you know, it's. It's not a. It's not an expensive show, okay. but it's an idea-based show. Um, we like to do everything with intention, every single thing with intention, and I think the sort of uh, and also do that, but go home at a reasonable time. And I don't know. That's just what I came into it with. Is, is let's be specific. Let's not waste a, a lot of money and time finding it. I think a lot of money goes out the window finding things, right. truly, where you just shoot a bunch of episodes well, I mean, it's not and whittle down. it down into I mean, something that you can watch. And that's what's so frustrating to me about so much of TV. Yeah. And actually some of the bigger movies, too, is they're just hosed down. It's just coverage. It's yeah. coverage. And that's fine. But I am 35, and I've grown out of that. <laughs> I don't know what that means for anybody else, but for me, like when I go and watch something and it just feels like a bunch of coverage, uh, I've already seen that. I've watched a lot of TV in my life. I've watched a lot of movies in my life. I want to watch something that I haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. Every time. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. It's something I've think. I've been thinking about this for many years, and this is outside of Dear White People. It's just a, it's a perfect example. And, and, and I want to preface this by in no way do I want you to take this as I'm a criticism. I'm more curious about the thinking. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by movies set in high school and college um, in that sense of casting. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. it's like, and there's there's different models of how to go in terms of of age. Yeah. You know, and um, it's it, it's it's interesting the way different people approach it, and mm -hmm. it, it seems for for your cinema, for your way of seeing this, um, that approach of 
not going age specific, having people in their late 20s, mm-hmm, 30. Mm-hmm, I mean, I don't know mm-hmm. how old they are. I'm just, you know, yeah, yeah. and it works. I'm not trying to say it doesn't no, no, work, no, no, I hear what you're but, but it's this thing where it's like, you know, when I went back, when I went back to teach college and I was, I was 30, it's, you think of all your friends from that age and you think, oh, we're, oh. Just, we're just a little lighter, we just have a little bit more hair, and it's like, no. No, you see them and it's like, oh my God. They don't have I hips. Never they don't, that young. Yeah, they have a chest, they don't have, like, the men, like, even the guys that are big are kind of like. Yeah, I went, I went to my alma mater um, a few weeks ago and I found a picture of myself as like a freshman, mm-hmm. and I was shocked. <laughs> I just like I've never looked like that. What you're, are you talking about? Your baby, right? yeah. So I mean, but that idea, <laughs> and I, I think in in some cases, uh, it really makes sense for like a red. Like it's hard to yeah. imagine. I'm sure you could have found an 18 year old, oh, 19 sure. year old Reg, or something like that. But 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 that that has to be like a conscious decision, and like how your yeah. college is going to look, because you can't just you can't mix and match. Right. I mean, you really the the key to it is you have to have a group of people who make a kind of sense together, because you know, in any one member of the cast being much younger or much older makes the rest of the cast look different. You know, um, and I think in a in a film. I think in a film, it's like really exciting when directors use people who are the quote unquote correct age. It can be very exciting. It can be really exhilarating. Um, you know, in election, even, you know, you can see him surrounding Reese Witherspoon by actual high school students in that movie. And that's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, fame, not so much. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, but like when Gus Van Sant did Elephant, you needed, abs- you needed those kids. You needed the ab- scrawny Absolutely. Kids. Or the Florida Project. Yeah. It's got to be children, you know. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's, in some instances, it's got to be people who, who aren't actors and are going to bring that to it. Mm-hmm. In my movie, in my show, rather, uh, you know, it is a heightened reality. It is a it is a satire. These characters, as much as they are real people dealing with real things, are representative of bigger ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think in a world like that, you can get away with people. And in fact, it's probably better to because um, one in a show, people grow up really quickly, and you would notice that uh, if we're dealing with these actual ages. You know, a person being 18 one year and being 20 the next year, and then being 22 the year after that. Uh, and and I, I recognize that I'm counting two years, but that's how TV works. When mm. you, by the time you see the season, they've aged a couple years. That that's weird, man. And we're not, <laughs> you know, we're not like other shows where we are shooting multiple seasons at once. Um, so it's really important to find people who are not only great and feel age appropriate, but have a level of craft that can handle this kind of material, which is really intellectual, really emotional, really visceral, um, but requires, it just requires a complexity of performance that I don't know that you would consistently get if everybody was 18. And even if they were, uh, you really would, the suspension of disbelief would flow out, blow out the window by season three, mm-hmm. because People grow up so quickly in those in those years that by the time someone's 24 or 25, they don't look anything, really. Like, they potentially could look nothing like they did at 18. And then you're in a situation where it's very obvious <laughs> that these people are not the correct age. Whereas you, you pick someone who's sort of mid to late 20s, they're going to look like that reasonably for a bit. <laughs> and the rest of it is character. If you love the character, hopefully you'll, you'll suspend your disbelief. Um... When Dear White People was announced as a project at Netflix, my colleague uh, Liz Miller and I did a story that we were signed about this sense of, um, you know, 
filmmakers such as yourself, and we talked to a lot of people, you were one of them, about filmmakers moving towards television and the, the, the welcoming of stories and, and what was going on in the film financing world. And that story, I don't want to get into, there's 3,000 words with a lot of great <laughs> voices in there. But there was something that I took from that that I always wanted to follow up with you on yeah. after, because one thing that was very interesting kind of as a side note of that was this that, you know, and Netflix actually went on the record with us and they usually don't, mm. and, they, and they talked about the fact they weren't only just confident. You were so confident that they knew there was an audience mm -hmm. for dear white people, mm -hmm. and that they, mm -hmm. they didn't get caught up in all the other nonsense. But they also said to to us this element of we also know that internationally, in watching, you know, God knows what they're, and I'm sure you don't have access to it, but this logarithm and their stats and their yeah. numbers, <laughs> but that this sense that there are pockets, this evangelical pockets that, of course, end up leading to other things all around that yeah. want these, not that obviously people react to things that are good, but that will also just be like, ooh. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I, I'd like to see a story about African-Americans yeah. in college, yeah. you know, this thing. And that, that, that belief that they were going to channel it there. Now, once again, I know Netflix ain't giving you ratings and you can't see yeah. it, but you sense things. Well, we certainly do, sense do you, things. Do you, and I, I know there's an obvious audience, the IndieWire reader, you yes. know, and, and, and in, the, in the States, there's this thing. But I'm wondering, do you feel oh, God, there's pockets yeah. of... Brazil especially. I mean, they're obsessed with the show, people in Brazil. Partly because there's no other shows that are like made in Brazil that really address race and class at all. Um, and even though the categories are, are a little different, they're dealing with the same exact issues like colorism and, you know, whether you're talking about, Af you know, Afro-Latino or African-American, whatever. It's the same. It, it translates in the same way in those communities. Um, one of the most phenomenal experiences of my life, I think, was taking the movie to France and to Stockholm and talking with audiences that I was sure weren't going to get it. And hearing them articulate what I was trying to say with that movie so perfectly <laughs> and understanding it, um, whether they were people of color in those places or not, was really, really interesting. And, you know, one of the things that I find is that race is probably one of the most successful cultural exports of America. It exists everywhere. And it, it existed here first uh, as, a, as a means of, uh, you know, building the nation, frankly, on the back of free slaves, freed slaves, slaves and then freed slaves. Um, but, you know, the, 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 I forget the name of it, but there's like this blackface Santa Claus tradition that happens um, in, in the Netherlands, you know, every year. And there's people who don't know how to feel about that. And in France, you know, because there isn't really a tradition of slavery, people of color there often feel like their issues are being ignored because, you know, there isn't this historical guilt over people of color in that part of the world, but they are being treated differently and colorism does affect their daily lives. It affects their health and it affects their, um, you know, how at risk they are uh, for certain things, for certain violent crimes. And it was just interesting to see that this was a universal thing, but also my goal as a filmmaker is always to talk about something universal, but through a personal lens. and. This idea of having to pretend to be one way to get along in society and not really having the time or the wherewithal to figure out who you are, that's something everybody in every society at some point feels. Mm -hmm. And it's a way in. And it's a way in for them to feel empathy about people who don't look like them. And to see how hungry people were to do that with black faces, people of color, women, gay people, was really exciting to see all over the world. So it's not a surprise to me that it does well in international pockets. 
Um, our fans in Brazil have definitely let us know how much they love us in multiple ways, and it's very exciting. So in the exhausting PR trip, you have to now go down to Rio? Is that it? Uh, I, I have not booked that trip yet. Uh, I'm waiting for that call. <laughs> That'd be fun. Last one. You, you were wonderful to partake at the end of the year. I, I put together uh, director's top movies of the yeah. year. Yeah. By the way, it was terribly annoying because you had not um, I think seen anything, and you <laughs> want to do it. And in the income, and you'd, be, and you'd like put in a DVD, like every uh, five hours I'd get a new blurb. Yeah. And it was, it was like, oh God, he could do my job. And it's like reading these blurbs in there, like <laughs> beautiful dissections of movies. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I went into the office and I was like, Justin could all have all of our jobs. Um, <laughs> but you wrote this and I wanted to come back to it. Uh, when you wrote about Get Out. I told Mr. Peel this, so I have no qualms admitting it here. I was awash in envious rage over Get Out. This is usually my first clue I'm watching something I will obsess over my whole life. I have a very different horror satire, also about black people gestating black hair, shoots next year. And here, Jordan Peel was not only pulling uh, his horror satire off, but also managed to completely reinvigorate the genre. It, you write extensively and beautifully about Get Out. People can go <laughs> read that. Um, it's an amazing film. Uh, um, I, are, is, is that something you're still, is yeah, that, is it's that? Called, it's called Bad Hair, and I'm shooting I, it in, I'm shooting it this summer. You are? Yeah. You're going to do that? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, we're just, uh, we just began the casting process. Um, I'm very excited. Uh, it follows a, a girl from Compton who doesn't have the right look, you know? Uh, she doesn't have the right hair, she doesn't have the right face, she doesn't have the right skin color. And she wants to be a VJ in the late 80s, early 90s. And she, uh, I won't say it's a, f it, yeah, she makes a bit of a Faustian bargain with this, this woman who takes over the network where she's at. And she ends up with this hair, she ends up with this, this weave in her head that uh, may or may not have a mind of its own. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a very cheeky movie, but it's also very firmly in the tradition of the great horror satires like Rosemary's mm -hmm. Baby and Stepford Wise and the, the first two Body Snatchers and those movies that I just love so much and Get Out, of course. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's my way of sort of taking my frustration at what I feel like black women are going through, what and anybody, but specifically black women in this country who we rely upon for so much, politically, culturally, um, just in terms of the family dynamic, and we put them through hell, and we make them suffer all of these quiet little deaths in order to just be seen in our culture. And I wanted to translate that into, in my own way, into a love letter of sorts, a very weird horror satire love letter uh, to that experience. And um, I don't know, it's, I think it's from my mom and her sisters and for every woman I've met that I've had this conversation with. Well, that's fantastic. And it's also, it's nice, uh, I, the only thing that I'm surprised by is I, I, my assumption was that Dear White People is got its own lifespan, that it's hard to, you know, that, that, it is hard. that one <laughs> imagines you finish, and then they put you out on the publicity tour, and you're already thinking about breaking, so it's wonderful that you can, you can, you can put something like this in. It is all those things, though. Um, <laughs> Justin, thank you for coming in. Congratulations on the season. It's, it's really wonderful. I appreciate that. Thanks, man.